Hello. Welcome to the fourth installment of Jen Waldo's novel, Snooping Caprock. In the last reading, Sandra visited the assistant zookeeper, who turned out to be unexpectedly hostile. And then, after having her feelings hurt by a friend in one of her support groups, Sandra took to her bed for several days. In this segment, Sandra makes enemies when she dominates the town meeting, which results in someone egging her car. Also, wolves are freed from their enclosure at the zoo. In our stairwalk discussion on Monday, we're all pretty much agreed that the pigs must be dead. Unlike with elephants and monkeys, there have been no sightings or reports, though everybody in town knows to keep an eye out. They have no natural defenses, one woman says. They're not big or fast. All they are is tasty, another comments, huffing as she ascends. Poor little pigs, a third says. I point out that there have been no further incidences. Maybe it's just one of those mysteries that'll never be solved, Janine responds. How can we bear not knowing, I ask, disturbed by this passive acceptance. As far as things I can't bear, lost pigs don't even come near the top of my list. This from Janine, who, I swear, looks like she's gained 10 pounds in the last week. Her pants are so tight across the backside that I fear for the seam. What does make your list, I ask. We spend the rest of our exercise time discussing things that make us miserable. I didn't see much of Ham this morning, but after lunch he comes in whistling. You're happy today, I say. Yep, the sun's shining, sorghum's up three points, and all's right with the world. How's Millie? I want to know. At her sister's, Millie's sister lives in El Paso. Her absence explains his good mood. How long has she been gone? I ask. Five days. She'll be home tomorrow. It's too bad I missed a few days of Ham being cheerful. Ham and Millie have been married for almost 40 years. She's volatile and high-maintenance, while Ham will go to great lengths to avoid confrontation of any kind. He seemed burdened before I took a few days off, but now, with her out of the picture since last week, he looks years younger. Are you going to the town meeting tonight? He asks, knowing that I always do. There'll be a crowd, I reply. People are worked up about the zoo, which is odd because nobody seems to ever actually go there. Also, why does a prank draw more attention than a man dying? Ham's smile collapses. What? I ask. What got you upset? Nothing, nothing. I'm fine. He turns away, heading toward his office. Closing down like that in the middle of a conversation. What a peculiar reaction. This is the second time someone has responded oddly to the zoo issue. Last time, it was Hazel thinking her father was the culprit. Just like with Hazel, Ham would never be involved in sneaky zoo activities, but releasing caged animals is just the kind of crazy stunt Millie would pull to get his attention. And not just his attention either, but the whole town's. I go after him, tapping on his closed door. He calls for me to enter, and I step inside. In this small amount of time, his lightheartedness has disappeared. His head tilts to the side, and his eyes look haunted. Do you think it's Millie? I ask. Is that the reason you walked away like that? Each time the animals were let out, she was on some errand, he says. First to the grocery store, and that was when the elephants got out. Then the next time, she went to buy a baby gift, and that's when the monkeys were freed. Did she come home with groceries? Did she buy a gift? Yes, he answers, but she still had plenty of time to do the other. What about when the pigs went missing? Was she out then, too? It was my poker night. I wasn't home. You don't actually know, I remind him. I strongly suspect, he says. Hazel also strongly suspected, and she was wrong. If it's her, you'll fix it like you always do, I say. Yes, he agrees. If I guess the possibility, someone else will, too. I tell him everybody knows how Millie is. When I leave him, his head is bowed. He took on a big load when he took on Millie. The town meetings are held in the Downey Middle School Auditorium. Usually, they're poorly attended, 35 to 50 people. 
but this evening there are at least a hundred, all of them anxious about the goings-on at the zoo. I'm worried about that, too, and would like to hear what the town leaders have to say about it, but I also have another issue I'd like to address. People mill, wave to each other, clog the aisles, and stumble through the rows of fold-down wooden chairs. I see several friends from work and my groups. I wave and smile, and they wave and smile in return. Myra, a nurse from the neurology center on the first floor of the building where I work, stands at the back holding her new baby, rocking back and forth. I stop to say hi and have a look. He's adorable, I tell her. How many times is he getting you up during the night? She looks exhausted. Her color isn't healthy, cheeks blazing, the rest of her face pale. Three times last night, she says, we gaze at the baby who's awake but not fretful. Myra's not married, and I suspect being a single mom to a newborn is difficult and lonely and sometimes frightening. If you need some alone time, I'm good for an afternoon this weekend, I tell her. Really? Of course. She says thanks, but as I prepare to move on, her eyes carry a shadow of disappointment, which makes me realize how many other people have probably offered this very thing and not followed through. I turn back. Let's make a plan right now, I tell her. Which afternoon works best for you? We make plans for her to drop baby Benjamin by my house at noon on Saturday. This time when I say goodbye, she's so grateful she's almost in tears. Up front, on the floor in front of the stage, a table is set up with chairs behind and microphones atop. When I get to my usual place on the front row, it's to find a sweater draped over the back. I'm saving it for my sister, Kath Wensler tells me. She's in her 40s with brassy hair and a sunken chin. She and I have never liked each other. It's my spot, I claim. I'm here every month. This is the first time she's ever come. It's saved, she says. But this is where I always sit, I tell her. Not tonight. Saving seats is rude. There's no law against it, she counters. I pinch the sweater, hold it aloft like it's diseased, drop it in her lap, and adjust my backside into the seat. Sandra Furlow, you need to work on your people skills. You're only supposed to sit on the first row if you have a proposal or question, I inform, asking, do you have a proposal or a question? No, she says, but I can sit wherever I want to, and I can save a seat, too, if I want. Obviously, you can't. I give her my shoulder, sit straighter, and twist to scope out what's going on behind me. Joe Epps, another who never attends, is also here, tucked into a back corner, looking more comfortable in jeans than the ill-fitting suit. He gazes all around, squinting suspiciously at everything and everybody. He meets my eye, gives a nod. Good heavens, he's here because he's considering my suggestion that the zoo break-ins are politically motivated. Just because it's possible doesn't make it likely. The seven council members shuffle in, take their places. Every one of them is conservative and narrow-minded. As a group, they lack focus and energy. But I'll say this for them. Every one of them is dedicated to the town and the democratic process. How can Joe not see that not one among them would knowingly break a law? Mayor Cantu, whose campaign slogan was Cantu Can Do, calls the meeting to order. First on the docket is a bond proposal to fund the construction of a new city offices building. An accountant presents the numbers. A spokesman explains the need and advantages. The presentation lasts 40 minutes and is met with limited enthusiasm. Among the audience, there is shifting and throat clearing. Next, the plan to seek a recreation advisor for next summer is put forward. Once again, involved parties are brought up to explain and justify. Thirty minutes into it, the audience grows agitated. They're unused to the tedium of these meetings. A tubby, bald man at the other end of my row pops up from his chair. When are we going to discuss zoo security? He asks. The authorities are working to find the culprit or culprits. 
the mayor's condescending tone, is rehearsed. Of course, we're all disturbed by this matter, but this council's job is to govern, not investigate criminal activity. But of course, we support our police department, and well, as always, the mayor's verbose diplomacy is rendering him ineffective. An intervention is called for. I stand and address the man at the far end. Sir, the time to bring this up is after the council is finished with the town's business. I stare him down until, disgruntled, he takes his seat. Only after he's settled do I lift a brow at the mayor, a reminder that I've got his phone number. Then I sit. Next up, a couple of elementary schools are in need of renovation. The superintendent gives a PowerPoint presentation that takes 45 minutes. And then the floor is open for questions. I spring to my feet, wanting to be heard before everybody gets embroiled in the zoo situation. I want to know why a meeting is being allowed at the CCC on Monday nights. My voice rings out while, all around me, the audience, disgruntled by my preemptive behavior, calls out questions about pigs and monkeys. Are sanctioned meetings and secret approvals allowed? Because if they are, I'll just go ahead and do what I want to do and ignore the rules. This elicits a snide, so what else is new, from Councilwoman Triplehorn, my history teacher from seventh grade. The members of the council cover their microphones and begin a discussion among themselves. I'm close enough to hear one of them ask the other, what is she talking about? The man at the end of the row stands up. What we want to know about is the zoo, he shouts in an effort to be heard above the ambient grumbling and murmuring. Wild animals wandering around town. If the CCC is now open on Mondays, I interrupt, my voice rising above, I'd like to propose an option for a group that would better serve the needs of all the people, not just a few. Fitness and nutrition. Considering that Caprock is the fifth most obese city in Texas, it's vital that we... Miss Furlough, Mayor Cantu says, you cannot dominate the entire town from the front row. Hosting clandestine meetings is hardly in the spirit of the CCC, I tell him. Now several people throughout the auditorium are standing, clamoring to be heard. We're here to talk about the zoo, this from a stout man three rows back. He puffs out his chest. His dark mustache is impressive. Here's a man who would benefit from a fitness and nutrition group. Meeting adjourned. The mayor bangs his gavel and the council members stand and file out, holding themselves straight and keeping their eyes fixed on the exit. Glittering eyes turn toward me, menacing eyes, accusing eyes. Even the people who are fond of me and know me well glare at me with scorn. The woman behind me hisses like a snake. The council left without addressing the zoo issue and I am being blamed. It wasn't my intention to squelch the discussion. I only wanted to get my little bit in first. As usual, you've managed to alienate everyone in the room, Kath Wensler says. She's right. Head down. I scuttle for the side door. I'm the first one out of the building. Or I thought I was the first one out. Joe Epps is leaning against the driver's door of my car. What did you think? I ask. Is a political conspiracy afoot? Ah, it's what I thought it was from the beginning. A kid's prank. You don't think an adult can act like a kid? I'm beginning to think we'll never get to the bottom of this. He slumps, defeated in a quest he never truly pursued. Nothing's happened out there in a week. Whatever it was about, it's over. Someone died, I say. Don't you think that's relevant? You don't think that's a reason to dig deeper? Hector Vasquez was drunk out of his mind, which has nothing to do with animals getting out. You're okay with never knowing? Not okay, but resigned. Crimes in Caprock are normally clear-cut. Vandalism, drunken disorderly behavior, domestic disputes, joyriding. What kind of detective are you? I am truly disgusted with him. The kind that knows when to quit, he says. Get out of my way, Joe. He grunts as he straightens from my car. Have a good one, he says, scuffing across the parking lot, joining the flow of people coming out of the meeting. 
And speaking of parking lots, this one is pitted and rough, in need of a resurfacing that was supposed to have happened during the summer. The work was approved and the funds allocated at the town meeting last April. I call the mayor and get his voicemail. I leave this message. Mayor Cantu, the Downey Middle School parking lot was supposed to have been resurfaced before school started, yet here it is, still jarring suspension systems and cracking axles. You and your fellow council members can't seem to get anything done. I disconnect. I end up at the CCC. Getting out of my car, I lean against the back fender. In the park across the street, the trees sway in the breeze, dry leaves clicking together. The building is dark. It's after 10.30. If anyone was in there, they're gone now. Did those women meet again? Did they sit in my circle and talk about how they've been hurt and how scared they are? I'm not in the mood to go home, so I decide to check on some people. Nearest the CCC is Tansy. I drive slowly through her neighborhood. It's that time of night when half the people have already gone to bed, or they're in the process. Shadowy forms shift behind the windows. Lights go on and off as sleepy folks work their way from one side of the house to the other. Tansy's house is dark and locked up. I wish her a good night's sleep, even though she doesn't like me. Hazel's part of town is out of my way, but I'm worried about her. Her street, too, is dark, but because the lots are bigger and the houses are bigger, the shadows are hulking and scary, the sinister monsters of the town's wealthy. I pull over in front of Hazel's house and peer at the windows, wondering which is hers and which is her father's. No movement. But at the side of the house, a beam appears, slight at first, then spreading out to form a large rectangle. And then red taillights glow as the old Cadillac backs out of the driveway. It emits a high-pitched beep, 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 the way larger vehicles do when they're reversing. It's loud and annoying. I don't see how Hazel doesn't hear it. I'm surprised that the whole neighborhood isn't out on their porches glaring in this direction. Intending to confirm what Hazel says she knows, I watch through the rearview mirror as the old guy bumps from the driveway into the street. I have plenty of time to observe his jagged silhouette as he rolls by, hunched and clutching the steering wheel like it's trying to get away. After a few seconds, I follow. Three miles an hour, around the block, never tapping the gas, riding the brakes the whole time. I stick with it for two rotations, then I take off. He could be at it for hours. The mayor's house is only a few blocks away. I get there just as he's pulling into his driveway. The meeting ended an hour ago, and he's just now getting home. I imagine he's got lots of people laying claim to his ear. I come to a stop on the opposite side of the street, watching as he pulls into the garage. He gets out of his car and exits the square building, his round, tired form outlined by the golden light. Then the garage door lowers, the illumination recedes, and he becomes a slumping shadow. I follow his movement to the rear side door of the house, where, key and lock, he looks toward the street and pauses there, mid-action. Can he see me? He shakes his head, finishes unlocking the door, and disappears inside. I'm not tired, so I head toward the zoo. Expecting to find the area all closed up and frightening this time of night, I'm surprised by lights illuminating the sky from the center of the park. I navigate the curvy, narrow road that leads to the zoo. The parking lot is bustling. Two police cars, a fire truck, an ambulance, two news vans, all headlights on, at least 20 people milling. Joe Epps is there, too, part of a cluster of folks up by the entry gate, which is open. Turning my lights off, I roll to a stop, staying back, beyond the reach of their high beams. Watching people when they don't know you're watching can be satisfying and educational. 
Posture, expressions, and gestures reveal hierarchies and loyalties. For instance, Joe, for whom I lack respect, seems to be a leader among the uniforms. They circle him, ask him questions, and wait for his answers. He responds and gives orders as though he knows what he's doing. Even the medical people hover near, listening attentively. I catch movement in my periphery. Off to my left, two dark forms. Slinking between tree trunks, noses down, long faces, big dogs, the wolves. It was my understanding that they were going to be put down. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. A car approaches, slowing when it gets to me. I look over. It's Tansy. Our eyes meet. She makes a mean face and gives me the finger before continuing into the lot. It makes sense that they would call her. She gets out of her car and approaches the knot of people. She's wearing her khaki work outfit, but the shirt's not tucked in and her hair hasn't been combed. When the others realize she's arrived, all faces turn in her direction. Joe motions for her to come forward. He circles an arm around her shoulders without touching her, separating her from the rest of the group, guiding her further along the fence. The two of them begin a conversation that involves puzzled looks and hand motions toward the open gate and the zoo beyond. Fearing it's just a matter of time before she tells me she saw me sitting out here, I put my car in reverse and slowly, stealthily back away. About 30 yards down the way, the road widens slightly and I use the extra space to turn around. A low-slung car moves towards me. Like my car, it's creeping along, headlights off. As our two windows come close, the other driver and I look at each other. The play of darkness and ambient light across her face gives her a ghostly visage. Hollow eyes, sharp nose, fat little chin. Though her features aren't attractive, her hair is exceptional. Full, dark, long, curly. Paula Mercer. Paula has a reputation. She's rough and mean, a woman who carries a knife and gets in bar fights. I think she even went to jail once for assault. What's she doing here? What's her interest in the zoo? I continue on. I'm out of the park before I turn my headlights on. When I get home, I put on the nightshirt my parents sent me, which, come to think of it, is the same khaki color as Tansy's safari uniform. Monkeys and elephants are one thing, Janine says as we enter the building from the garage the next morning, but wolves are dangerous, not only for the town, but for the idiot that let them out. I thought they were going to be put down, I comment, and now they're running loose. They're probably in Wyoming by now, she says. The good news is that because Ham's wife, Millie, isn't due back until this afternoon, it's apparent she's not the miscreant. This morning on the local news station, the theme song was Who Let the Dogs Out? Now I can't get it out of my mind. It's going to annoy me all day. I halfway expect Joe Epps to be waiting for me at the office, but he's not there. Did Tansy not tell him I was there? Why would she withhold information that would turn suspicion elsewhere? Ham comes in 15 minutes earlier than usual. Everything about him, the slump, the frown, the foot drag, indicates gloom. Why so glum, I ask him. Millie's in the clear. She came home a day early, he tells me. And last night, I ask. She said she went to the town meeting. Did you see her there? It was crowded. Distracted and sad, he shuffles toward his office. Millie wears diamonds, suspended from delicate gold chains. She favors fitted dresses, demure and pristine. Her slingback footwear is stylish and feminine, and her platinum hair is professionally streaked. Is this a woman who would trip through the dark zoo and set wolves free? In light of her past peculiar actions, I understand Ham's suspicions, but she loves herself too much to put herself in danger like that. At lunch, I skip stairwalking and go to the zoo. 
The gate is closed and padlocked. There are no cars in the lot. I get out of the car. It's another windy day and the gusts are aggressive, pushing at me. For no reason other than wanting to feel like I'm doing something, I go to the gate and tug on the lock, which is secure. I'm scared wolves are going to come running at me, but that's silly. They're miles away from here by now. I hear a distant screech from the other side of the high fence. The odor of dung whips around. Who's caring for the animals? I drive to Tansy's house. Her car is parked on the street instead of in the driveway. Pulling up behind her, I follow the cracked walkway to the front door and ring the bell. She answers, sporting a slit lower lip and a massive red swelling on her left jaw. What the hell? I comment. What the hell yourself? She makes a move to close the door, but I put my foot in, glad I'm wearing solid shoes instead of flimsy sandals. You should put ice on that, I tell her. Go away. She tries to close the door again, this time with more force, but my foot remains. Who's taking care of the animals? I ask. The zoo is closed until further notice, she says. That's not an answer, I point out. God, Sandra, you are so pushy. Proving her opinion, I shove my way inside, forcing her to stumble back. I'm small, but I'm strong. The entryway is cramped and low-ceilinged, with little effort put into its decoration. A spindly table holds an empty vase and a bowl containing coins and paper clips. A crooked coat rack is stuck in a corner, its arms holding a couple of jackets. Why didn't you tell Joe Epps you saw me last night, I want to know. I wouldn't give you the satisfaction, she replies. You may want to be in the center of everything, but I don't have to be the one to put you there. Setting those wolves free was dangerous. How do you think it was done? I ask. This is going to be nagging at me until I figure it out. Your guess is as good as mine, she says. Who hit you? Her house smells of cooking oil and dank socks. Hands on hips, I lean in. Are you in some kind of trouble? I swear, Sandra, I will call the police if you don't get your skinny ass out of here right now. Her bold threat is contradicted by the tremor of her busted lip, the fearful slant of her eyes toward the back of the house. Someone else is here, and she is afraid of whoever it is. Contact me. In reaction to her furtive glance, I've changed my voice to a whisper, Today, or I'll be back. I hand her another card, expecting her to tear this one in half, too. She tucks it into her front pocket instead. I walk out the door. You need to learn to mind your own business, she calls before slamming the door. I settle behind the wheel, close my eyes, and, key in hand, wheel my mind to clear. But it's hard to think about nothing. Images intrude. Anxieties take over. My mind doesn't know how to be quiet. First image, Hazel and her father exchanging blows. Disturbing. I turn that off. Second image, violated women sitting in a circle, reliving their ordeal again and again. I don't want to go there. Next up, Edgar the cat on his back, clutching my hand with his front paws as it shreds the skin of my wrist with its rear claws. The scratches are still red and itchy, and this makes me mad at Mom and Dad all over again. I shake the vision away, and Tansy's accusation takes its place. You want to be in the center of everything, she'd said. She's wrong. I don't want to be in the center. I just want everything to be the way it should be. I open my eyes, poke the key at the ignition. It's time to head back to work. As I'm shifting to pull out, an old Camaro rose across my rearview mirror. The car is dented and so rusty that its original color is difficult to discern, blue or gray. Reversing out of Tansy's driveway, it backs into the street, pauses in its switch to drive, and rolls by me. I take in the curly long hair, the nose like a beak. Paula. She was at the zoo last night and now she's coming away from Tansy's house and Tansy's sporting a busted lip and bruised jaw. Facing forward, hunched over the wheel, Paula doesn't seem to notice me. I pull away from the curb. 
At the corner, she turns right, and so do I. I follow, but not at a great distance. I don't care if she sees me or not. When she gets in the left turning lane on San Jacinta, I pull up right behind her. She takes a left, then turns into the Wellington, an extensive and unimaginative apartment complex. I've known a few people who've lived in this bricked warren, all in transition. Going through a divorce, just moving to town and in need of something temporary, beset by financial woes. The sweeping wind carries the combined odors of automobiles, insecticide, and garbage. When she parks, I roll to a stop a couple of rows over and watch as she leaves her car and heads towards one of the ground floor units. She's met at the door by Beth Kyle, Tansy's sex partner during the Bond movie. The two embrace. When Beth steps back, the light hits her face and I see that she, too, has taken a wallop. One of her eyes is swollen almost closed. That afternoon, Janine calls me from next door. I just heard on the news that there's evidence of foul play, she says. What? Hector Vasquez was dead before he went into the wolf enclosure, she tells me. That's what they're saying. That evening, I sit next to Donald at Possession Obsession. Across from me, Mabel Larkin primly adjusts her skirt. She turns her ankle slightly, revealing the sole of her shoe, which bears only the slightest hint of wear. New shoes. I bet the skirt's new, too. Her gaze, flitting between me and Donald, tells me that she recalls me questioning her about him a couple of weeks ago. She presses her lips together and looks away. Did I see you fishing at Lake Verity a couple of Saturdays ago? I ask Donald. You fish? He seems surprised. It's a pleasant pastime, I reply. I'm about to ask him what he thinks about when he's fishing when our conversation is interrupted by Karen. We have an announcement, she says, beaming. She and Bill hold hands and share a fond glance. We're getting married. This is met with a general murmur of joy and congratulations. Everybody seems happy for them. I put on a smile and murmur with the rest of them, but to me their news is disconcerting. A shoplifter and an addict. The only way it won't be doomed is if they truly put their vices away. And while I believe that Bill is making the effort to conquer addiction, it's an arduous and excruciating battle. And I don't sense any sincere volition at all in Karen when it comes to giving up her thievery. We should renew our dedication to changing our bad habits and bettering our lives, I say hopefully. Support groups only help if we take them seriously. Everyone in the group nods. Donald? I address his profile. Those of us who haven't been in the group as long as you have aren't sure why you're here. Would you like to tell us? Ah, he crosses his arms over his chest and clears his throat. I'm not in the mood to talk about it. Maybe next time. I'll talk, Pete says. I'm seeing someone who's encouraging me to stop buying power tools, and I've managed to stay away from my favorite websites all week. I wonder if the new woman in his life is Ellen, the newcomer in grief. He tells how he's using replacement therapy, which, simply put, means instead of buying power tools, he's buying other things. What kind of things? This from Joan, who spends money online like it isn't real. Like saws and screwdrivers and wrenches, he answers. But isn't that the same thing? Bill voices what we're all thinking. No, he denies. These are hand tools, a totally different entity. A sideways step at best, I say. We spend the next 45 minutes discussing what does and doesn't constitute sensible replacement therapy. When it's time for break, we tromp to our regular area across the street and pull out our cigarettes. With man-eating wolves running around and a man murdered, the conversation is dark, apprehensive, and derisory toward the police. That guy in charge of the investigation is dragging his feet, from Bill. He doesn't have a cellular reputation, from Pete. Yeah, I hear he's a real idiot, from Karen. I find myself feeling sorry for Joe. 
They say Vasquez sustained a blow to the head. This from Donald. Not surprisingly, a direct quote from the evening news. I feel bad for the family, Karen says. They thought he was on vacation and the whole time he was dead and pulled apart by wolves, and now they find out he was murdered? They must be devastated. Families mourn in different ways, I tell her, thinking about the party that was going on at the Vasquez house. The wolves could be anywhere. Bill scratches his chin and looks thoughtful. They could be watching us right now from the park. Ah, uh, they're long gone by now. Donald's bland reassurance doesn't stop us from looking warily over our shoulders into the shadows of the trees. The Caprock Police Department is hopeless, Bill says. They should have nipped this thing as soon as the elephants got out. They seem to think there's no connection between the animals and Vasquez. This is what I've garnered from my conversations with Joe and Carol. That's what they were saying yesterday, Donald says, but that might have changed now that they know Vasquez was murdered. The release of the wolves when they're slated to be put down points to an activist or even an activist group, Pete says, dropping the remainder of his cigarette and grinding it with the ball of his foot. Unlikely, I say. Have you ever known anybody in this town to get worked up enough about something to a point where they have actually taken action? I have faith in the torpid nature of my fellow townsfolk. There's a buzz of agreement. Also, at first everybody thought Hector Vasquez wandered into the enclosure, but now there's the question of how he got in there. Someone had to have put him in there, Pete says, which would be just as dangerous as setting the wolves free, I point out. You think it was someone who knows how to handle wolves? Karen asks. I think when we know how, we'll know who, is my response. After group, Joe is waiting by my car, resting his backside against my door, just like he was last night after the town meeting. I don't like you showing up all the time, I tell him. What did your CCC cohorts have to say about the wolves, he asks. They said the Caprock PD sucks. No new theories, no admissions of guilt? Nope, I tell him. You made a lot of people mad last night when you hogged to the town meeting. He studies me through narrow eyes, interested in my response. They'll get over it, I say. I fold my arms across my chest, a defensive gesture. Some might even say you were rude, he replies. It was rude of everybody else to be so stupid. You really don't care whether people like you or not, do you, he asks. I really don't, I respond. Let me get to my car. Just a minute, because I'm curious. You're from a nice family, you're not ugly, and you're not dumb, but you go out of your way to be abrasive. Why would you rather make enemies than friends? I have friends, I tell him. No, you really don't, he says, straightening and stepping away from my car. With a, have a nice night, he walks away. The next morning, it's on the news that a cow has been found dead on some grazing land northwest of town, ordinarily not a thing that would make the news, as there are coyotes in the area. But the ranch hand who found the carcass thought there was something different about the kill, and so the animal husbandry department at Hepburn was called in to confirm that it was savaged by wolves. So I guess they're going to track the wolves by following the carnage, Janine says as we walk through the garage. Joe Epps said I'm abrasive and that I don't have any friends, I tell her. She stops moving. I continue for a few steps before realizing she's not beside me. I turn and see that her mouth is agape and her eyes are wide. I thought you said you weren't seeing him, she tells me. I'm not, I deny. Not in the way you're talking about. You know I don't do relationships. But only someone who's involved would say such a mean thing. So being in a relationship means you can say any nasty thing you want to someone and they can do the same to you? I ask, confused. Well, it means you're comfortable enough with someone to tell them the truth, she explains. You think he told me the truth? I ask, that I don't have friends? I thought you were my friend. Honey, of course I'm your friend. She bites her lower lip and slants her eyes away before saying, Time to get started with our day. 
When I return to the parking garage after work, it's to find that my car has been egged. It's irksome to realize that someone purchased eggs, drove to this part of town, circled to the third level of the garage, and smashed eggs into my car, being careful not to get egg on neighboring vehicles. I know this because I take the time to check. I'd feel awful if someone else's car took a hit that was meant for me. This happened earlier in the day because the mess has hardened. I've been making people mad lately. I'm aware. I'm capable of stepping outside myself and seeing how I look to others. But if I'm not a little assertive now and then, how will everybody know what to do or think? We all have our roles to play, and here, in this indolent and flaccid community, it's my place to keep everyone moving forward. Occasionally, someone is going to respond in a negative way. Refusing to let it upset me, I stop by the car wash on the way home, handing double the usual amount to Tim because of the extra work. Then I stop by the liquor store because I'm the facilitator tonight at Smokers, and that means it's my turn to supply the booze. A couple of hours later, when we're all settled in our circle, I open the discussion. Amy, how is not smoking in the car going? I'm sticking to it, she says. I'm still considering the electronic cigarettes, though. Are you still late everywhere? I ask. I wasn't late just now, was I? But you were late last week, Lurlene says, then addresses me. You wouldn't know because you weren't here, and it was your turn to supply the booze. I'm sorry, I tell them. I wasn't feeling well. That's not what we heard. This from Wendell, who's been quiet up to this point. What did you hear? I ask. The idea that they discussed me in my absence is hurtful and alarming. We heard that something someone said in possession obsession got you so upset that you dropped out of sight for five days. That absolutely did not happen, I deny. Let's get this meeting back on topic. They follow my lead, but later, when we gather around the coffee area and we've toasted another week of thinking about quitting smoking, the discussion doesn't go where I expect it to go, the zoo, but instead focuses on me. You dominated the town meeting the other night, Eve says. If I don't take charge of things, nothing gets done, I tell her. The town council has no follow-through, like the parking lot of Downey Middle School. Funds were allocated, a schedule was drawn up, but the work was never done. Who's going to call the mayor and point this out if I don't? Throats clear and they share guilty looks. Finally, Lurleen speaks. We just want to ask if maybe you've explored other ways of handling things. Other ways than what, I ask? Other ways than telling the truth and keeping folks on track? I hear your car got egged, Marv says. Do you think that might not have happened if you weren't so controlling? The person at fault is the person who egged my car, not me. I'm feeling persecuted and maligned. Why are you ganging up on me? What have I done to any of you? We care about you, this from soft voice Amy. We want you to think about the kind of energy you're releasing into the world. This is not the first time this has happened. Every once in a while, one or two people will decide that I'm overstepping or overreacting or harboring unrealistic expectations. Snide whispers will turn into bold complaints. Criticisms will be exchanged and grievances will be circulated until the whole group is worked up enough to stage an uprising. But their resolve seldom lasts. Their rebellion is weak in the face of my determination. So, for now, I'll do what needs to be done, and in a few days, things will go back to being the way they were. I'm sorry, I say. I'll try to do better. This seems to satisfy them. We return to the circle, and I spend the rest of the meeting in composed acquiescence, presenting a bland expression as, internally, I talk myself down. I tell myself that their puny intervention wasn't even a dark mark on the timeline of my day. All it accomplished was to give them a false belief that they can make a difference. I examine what they said to me and about me and conclude that it's no big deal, just a few erroneous sentences from people who don't know me all that well. At the end of the meeting, I release a sigh of relief. 
Next week, the normal dynamic will have been restored. As we're leaving, Amy glues herself to my side, walking to the parking lot with me. Are you okay? She asks. We didn't hurt your feelings, did we? See, already she's retreating, separating herself from the cause, abandoning a position of strength because she yearns for reconciliation. All I offer in response is a noncommittal, uh... It's just that, well, your life would be smoother if you didn't always come on so strong, she says, if you'd quit trying to manage everything. I already offered one fake apology. It's exasperating that she seems to be expecting another. We arrive at my car. She stands beside me, waiting for me to once more admit that I've been in the wrong. Have a good night, I tell her, stepping around, opening the door, and sliding behind the wheel. In the rearview mirror, I see her standing there, watching as I drive away, looking confused and anxious. Yes, I snarl at her reflection. You're right to worry. I say it vindictively, but I don't mean anything by it. If I wasted time trying to get back at everybody who wants to change me, I'd never get anything done. I told Tansy to contact me, but she never did. Instead of going home, I head to her place. She's backing out of her driveway as I turn onto her street. Keeping a distance, I follow her out of the neighborhood, up Caraway, to the northern edge of town, and into the large and pitted parking lot of Hattie's, a popular country western bar. Originally a warehouse, it's a large square structure with high windows and loading docks that no longer serve a purpose. It and its adjacent lot take up more than an acre. The parking lot is half full. There are more people here than I thought there would be on a Wednesday night. I get out of the car and head toward the entrance. Because smoking's not allowed inside, the air out here is gray and acrid. Loitering the required 20 feet from the main entrance, the smokers perch their backsides on the rails of the loading docks, lean against the walls of the building, or prop themselves against the fenders of the front row of cars. The music leaks out, happy and unrestrained, rehearsed spontaneity. I run into Joe Epps at the door. Are you following me? I ask, still irritated with him for calling me abrasive. Don't flatter yourself. I'm following her. He jerks his chin toward the doorway that Tansy has just entered. Finally, I say, you're taking reasonable action. We pay our cover charges and go inside. My senses are immediately assaulted. The music is too loud and the lighting is too murky. Even though it's a cool time of year, the heat put out by this many people is suffocating. Overhead fans, gigantic and languid, sweep the body odor from place to place. From the entrance, I count three bars, but that's just on this end of the building. There are probably more placed throughout. The whole interior is centered around a huge dance floor where at least 50 people are line dancing, which is good exercise. I'll tell Janine about this. She should dance instead of watching TV and eating snacks. Waitresses wearing jeans and fringed cowboy shirts pass between tables holding trays aloft. Joe says something that I don't hear. Realizing that I didn't catch what he said, he takes my upper arm and guides me to a shadowed alcove at the end of one of the bars. It's quieter here. This place is huge, I say. There are a lot of people here for a weeknight. It must be packed on the weekend. You've never been here? He asks. Where'd she go? I look around. So now you think she was involved. At first you were sure she wasn't. He points toward a table where Tansy's pulling out a chair. She's joining her two friends, Beth and Paula. I never said I thought she wasn't somehow involved. I said she was being accused without any evidence or investigation. Oh, and look who she's meeting, he says. Paula Mercer. You know her? I ask. Not to speak to. She's done time. It's my job to know who she is. It looks like Zoo Girl and that other one had a fight. They're both all bruised up. What I want to know is, who's taking care of the zoo? Tansy is, under supervision. What do you mean? I ask. How does that work? Well, an officer walks her through in the mornings while she feeds the animals and checks on things. 
And when it's closed, we run regular patrols out there. That's how we knew the wolves were out. How much longer is it going to be closed, I ask. Are they hiring somebody new to come in? Oh, who the hell knows, he says. We turn our attention to the three women. A waitress stops by their table, and Paula gives the order. Tansy and Beth maintain a distance from one another and both sit shoulder to shoulder with Paula. With heads tilted toward the table and shoulders hunched, the two look like chastised children as Paula dominates. She sits straight, holds her head high. Her arms crook slightly outward at the elbows, indicating that she's got a hand on each of the other women's thighs under the table, a possessive and controlling posture. What are you seeing? I ask Joe. How does he view this situation? Do he and I see the same thing? I see three unattractive women in a bar here to pick up guys, he says. No imagination, no perception. We don't see the same thing at all. In all fairness, though, I know things he doesn't, and that's what makes me better at his job than he is. Mercer's not bad, he says, but she's got a face like a ferret. You'd have to close your eyes if you went at it face to face. Their beer arrives, and Paula lifts the pitcher, pours, and slides one glass to Tansy, the other to Beth. Paula takes a drink, smacks her lips, and looks around, presenting in profile her sharp nose, her sunken chin. Joe's right. She does look like a ferret. She shifts her gaze towards us, and her eyes, glittering and hard, snag mine. Leaning to the side, she whispers something to Tansy. Tansy looks in my direction, and her eyes grow wide. She returns her attention to Paula, pleads, pouts, and shakes her head as she desperately tries to explain my presence. I glance at Joe. He hasn't caught any of this. The next morning, I have a few minutes to check my email before appointments begin to arrive. Someone has sent me this message. Dear nosy bitch, stay away from me and my friends. I don't want to see you coming up behind me again. I mean it. The sender is not named. The email address is a local internet cafe. It's Tansy's dominating girlfriend, Paula, obviously. I bet she's the one who egged my car. All I wanted when I stopped by Tansy's the other day was to know why she didn't tell Joe I was at the zoo that night. I still want to talk to her, but now it's her safety I'm concerned about. Paula is scary. And here's a mental leap. Would those victims who gather on Monday nights and whine about abuse accept a woman who's been abused by another woman? Hazel approaches the counter and slides some paperwork towards me. I just got a threatening email, I tell her. She strolls around, leans in with a hand on my shoulder, and scans the screen. What's this about you coming up behind, she asks. Have you been following someone again? You know you really shouldn't do that. How do I know where someone's going if I don't follow them, I ask. You're not supposed to know. It's a little thing we in the sane world call privacy. Looking down at me, she raises a concerned brow. Do you think this is from the same person who egged your car? Could be, I say, or maybe not. There are a lot of people irritated with me right now. I wonder why that is, she says. I drove by your house after the town meeting and saw your dad backing out of the driveway, I tell her. The fact that I took the time to check on her father should make her more tolerant. You were absolutely right about what he's doing. He's creeping around the block in his car. I followed him a couple of times. The same way you followed this person who sent you the email, she asks. Pretty much, I tell her. What time did he leave the house? It couldn't have been later than 11, but every house on your street was dark. How is it that everybody in your area goes to bed before 11, I ask. Another fascinating mystery for you to solve. Chuckling at her wit, she wanders back to the examination rooms. Tansy is living an unexpected life. When she was in high school, her desire to fit in was so apparent and desperate that it acted as a repellent, causing everyone to make a wide circle, faces turned away. And now she lives outside of what she wanted then. I wonder who she sees when she looks in the mirror. 
Ham shuffles in and passes by with a muttered morning. He goes to his office, and I follow him, tap on his closed door, and enter. Settling behind his desk, he looks up expectantly. His eyes are red from lack of sleep, and there's a tremor in his fingers, a manifestation of his stress. How are you doing? I ask. Life's hard, he says. I'm exhausted. Poor guy, he's falling apart. I think you're wrong about Millie, I tell him. Whoever opened that wolf enclosure knew what they were doing. It would be dangerous. Millie would never take such a chance with herself. I wish I could believe that, he says sadly. I exit, closing the door behind me. The only way he's going to know Millie isn't breaking into the zoo is if I find proof that she was where she claimed she was, the town meeting. Returning to my counter, I call a friend of mine, Allred Thorpe, a photographer for the newspaper. He dropped out of nicotine addiction about a year ago, and we have not kept in touch. Uh-oh, he says when I identify myself. What kind of trouble are you stirring up now? What would it take to get your visual coverage of the town meeting? I get right to it. All I got were stills, no footage. Stills are fine, I say. I'll sell them to you for a hundred bucks, he tells me. Fifty, I counter. A hundred or nothing, he says. We arrange to meet beside my car in the parking garage at one, just after my lunch walk with the women. I leave the building and cross the massive visitor's lot to the lobby of the Baptist Hospital, where there's an ATM machine. Taking a hundred out of my account, I turn to find Ham's wife, Millie, standing right behind me, waiting for her turn. She's changed her appearance so drastically that at first I don't recognize her. Her eyes are surrounded by heavy black liner, and her lips, normally understated plum, are a garish pink. Her hair is puffed and tangled as though she didn't comb it when she got out of bed. Black fan-shaped earrings, gaudy chandeliers, hang from her lobes. Most noticeable, though, is the tiger-printed lycra that squeezes her from shoulder to shin. Her skin-tight top is cut so low that two inches of cleavage is exposed. She stands four inches taller than usual because of the stiletto heels, also black. Fifty-six years old and dressed like a 25-year-old mall from the 80s. In light of this absurd outfit, it's not hard to believe that she once clambered onto the back of the stuffed buffalo at the museum and cried hysterically as several families looked on, an incident which supports my thoughts as to why she's not behind the zoo break-ins. All the crazy things she's done, like crying on the buffalo and torching her neighbor's tree, have been impulsive, not furtive and planned and perilous. Hi, Millie. Did you get a makeover in El Paso? Should I pay her a compliment? Changing the subject seems the tactful step. Are you visiting someone or are you here for an appointment? I ask her. How is that any of your business? Her voice is shrill and her eyes have a suspicious gleam. It's my business because you're my boss's wife, I tell her, and so, by extension, it's my job to look after you just like I look after him. Horseshit, she says. You just like sticking your nose in. Shouldn't you be back at the office ruling your little world from behind your little counter? Good seeing you, too, I say, brushing past her. I head toward the exit, clutching the 250s. Exiting the building, I step to the side and watch through the glass frontage as she takes a sum from the ATM and turns toward the elevators, looking ridiculous as she wobbles on the high-pointed heels. Slipping the cash in the side pocket of my purse, I re-enter the building, follow her, and peek around the corner just as she enters one of the elevators. She's the only passenger, so it's easy enough to see where she gets off. Sixth floor, orthopedics, which makes no sense at all. I return to the office and enter the waiting area with the day's first patient at my heels. At lunchtime, during our stairwalk, one of the women mentions that she knows someone who knows someone who saw me at Hattie's last night with Joe Epps. 
She claims she's not involved with him, Janine says, talking about me like I'm not there. But Hattie's sounds like a date to me. We're working on the zoo thing together, I tell them. And speaking of Hattie's, Janine, have you ever thought about line dancing? It looks fun and it would be good exercise. There you go, worrying about my health again. It's both sweet and annoying. I heard they closed the zoo, one of the women says. The hordes will be disappointed from another. Tansy Carlin is getting out there every day, I tell them. A police officer escorts her in and keeps an eye out as she feeds and checks on the animals. The question is, are they watching because they think she's involved in all this, or are they watching because they think she's in danger, Janine asks. A good question indeed. Leaving them to finish their walk, I head for the parking garage. Allred is a goofy-looking guy with long face and bulging blue eyes. His stringy golden hair flies up and around, stirred by the gusts that whoosh through the parking garage. It's cool in here, and he has no jacket. The sight of him, lurching from shadow to shadow like a spy, lifts my spirits. It's fun how he views everything through a humorous lens. With exaggerated clandestine gestures, he slides toward me and slips me a flash drive. I hand him the money. What is it you're looking for? He hugs himself in a futile attempt to protect himself from the chill. Just checking someone's alibi, I tell him. Listen to you, cop speak. Who's alibi? I'm not saying, I answer. You know I'm in the news gathering business, right? His wink is a lame attempt to get information through charm. There's nothing here you or anybody at the paper needs to know. Right, he says. How about giving me a statement about what it felt like to find a dead body? It didn't feel good, I reply. Well, that's not the most imaginative, newsworthy quote. Your teeth are chattering, I point out. Take care. Look forward to seeing you again in a year or two. We turn away from each other, heading in opposite directions. This concludes the fourth segment of Snooping Caprock. In the next installment, Sandra has a battle of wills with her nemesis, Wendy, the leader of the grief support group, takes a friend's baby to a funeral, and has a conversation with the murdered zookeeper's son. Also, the zookeeper Tansy will be admitted to the hospital, a victim of domestic violence.